A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. The bare naked ladies make people happy, but the bare naked ladies make Stephen Page sad. From the start, there was a strain of melancholy and anxiety in the band's output, courtesy of Page. Why were the same goofballs who sang silly songs about Kraft Dinner and Yoko Ono also singing about being paralyzed with depression, just like Brian Wilson was? Maybe that contradiction undercut the band's fun and squeaky clean image, or Maybe it created a tension that kept the band interesting. Something more than a novelty band. Whatever the secret sauce was, it worked. For a long, long time. BNL worked better than almost any other Canadian band in history. I'm not going to pretend to be a huge Bare Naked Ladies fan just because Stephen Page happens to be on the show today. But what I am saying is that right now, if I had to, and lucky for you, I don't, if I had to, I could sing more Bare Naked Ladies songs than I could from any other Canadian band. They've sold more records than just about any other Canadian band. They have lasted longer than just about any other Canadian band. And they're still out there, on tour, with Hootie and the motherfucking Blowfish. But without Stephen Page. Page and the Ladies broke up 10 years ago. Since then, Stephen Page has done a ton of stuff. He hosted a food show. He's written musicals. He's put out a bunch of solo albums, including his current one, Discipline, Heal Thyself, Part 2. But Stephen Page jumped off of a sure thing. 
a beloved feel-good Canadian institution that will be cashing checks for singing about Chickity China, the Chinese chicken, well into their golden years. I am curious about why he did that. I don't think it was just because of the cocaine. And Stephen Page joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Andrew Clary, Jennifer Besner, Ramesh Dharan, Axel Sinhuber, Dylan Forsberg, Todd Phillips, Stephanie Simons, and Stephen Rurda. I'm Stephen Rorda, an engineer from Cambridge, Ontario, and I've been a proud supporter of Canada Land for almost five years. And even though Jesse can be a little bit annoying and he apologizes maybe just a bit too often, he and the entire Canada Land team provide an important and intelligent critique of the Canadian media industry. We need this independent voice, especially with all the crap going on around us. I hope Jesse and the entire Canada Land team continue their great work. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Hi, Stephen. How are you, Jesse? I'd like to begin by talking about me. Yeah. Gordon came out when I was in grade nine. Perfect year for it. And like everybody, I bought it. But by grade 10, I wouldn't be caught dead with it. Sure. And I had redefined myself and wanted to be seen in a very different way. And also had been introduced to all this like, you know, alternative music had changed. Well, the summer between grade nine and grade 10, I think is like the biggest time for kids with finding their identities. It was for me, at least. It was the difference between Genesis and Pink Floyd in grade nine. And in grade 10, it was you know, whatever CKLN was playing or whatever. It was, you know, going to see concerts and getting into New Wave then. Well, the whole purpose of music had changed. It had changed from like, what's an album that I really enjoy to like, how do I want the world to perceive me? 
as a kind of result of my musical choice. So by this point, I uh, had uh, been introduced to like edgier stuff like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and decided <laughs> that that is, you know, so I like shaved the sides and back of my head yeah. in an attempt to get at the time the Red Hot Chili Peppers look, but I had like a Jufro, so it didn't have that long, <laughs> and I have a, a round chubby face. <laughs> So I couldn't pull off the Red Hot Chili Peppers look. And I was, I remember I have this like, you know, shame memories are like burned into. Of course. So I was at a McDonald's trying to look like I was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And some child pointed at me and laughed and said, are you a bare naked lady? Because I looked like <laughs> Like Ed <Anne> Robertson. <laughs> and there was this really attractive girl from one of my illustration classes who just started laughing and laughing. So I just want to find some common ground with you. And I want you to know that I too know what it's like. To want desperately to be taken seriously as a man, <laughs> a man with untold depths of complexity and artistry and sexuality to a world that can only see me as a member of the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> I'm happy to have contributed to your shame, though, too, because I always feel like my, you know, my shame is my shame alone. No, no, I, uh, I feel your pain. I feel your shame. Okay, let's go back to there's this moment that this all took place in or right beforehand that I think we still don't even have a name for. Like it wasn't rock. Right. Right. And then later there was alternative rock would mean something very different. But I think you got filed under alt rock, but it wasn't just you. It was right before alternative got defined by grunge and it was very self-serious and very dark and edgy. It was this moment and it was a Canadian moment that was like bare naked ladies. If I had a million dollars, we wouldn't have to eat crap. But we would. Look, I like craft dinner. I think we'd eat more. If I Porky and the Juice Pigs. Moxie Fruvis. So I got myself on a streetcar and it drove right into someone. You know, the driver said, I was looking straight ahead. But he was reading the Toronto Sun. Who else? The odds? It's just a problem. Lowest of the low, I guess we're in there too, in a sense. What do we call this? Like, it was wacky and cheerful. It was chubby. It was good, clean fun. Help me out here. Do we have a name for this? You were there. You lived it. Yeah, I didn't think about it as a name then at the time. Because for me, it was so much of it was defined, first of all, by CFNY radio in Toronto. Yeah. What was the format at the time of CFNY? Well, it was... We would have called it a new wave station or something at the time. The American equivalent was college rock, although it wasn't a college station. Alternative, I think, was the word we started to use. Yeah. But we always scoffed at that word, too, because we thought, like, what's an alternative to? But I remember it was that era before Nirvana, for me, was defined by I was looking at the self-seriousness of, like, Joshua Tree era U2, the glowering black and white photographs and so on. Very melodramatic. Very melodramatic. And what I saw, I mean, I was a huge music fan and from the age of... 17 was trying to sneak into clubs to see bands here in Toronto. And, you know, I would see a lot of bands that I thought were kind of denying who they really were, like kind of create a sense of whether it was, you know, Americana or CBGB's punkness or whatever that was untrue to themselves. And we knew very well that we were loading up the drum kit and driving back to our parents' houses at that point in Scarborough or Richmond Hill. Yeah. And we thought that was kind of funny that we were in a band and doing music. In the early days, we didn't take it that seriously. And you mentioned Corky and the Juice Pigs. For Bare Naked Ladies, that was how we started. We were huge fans of theirs, never intending to be a comedy group, but comedy was kind of how we interacted with each other. And we had this little indie tape that we kept trying to give to every band that we'd see. 
But it was this era where independent releases like our Yellow Tape and a bunch of others started to really pick up steam. They started getting played on the CBC, started getting played on college radio, and then eventually on mainstream radio. And much music was a big part of that, too. The following is a much more music special presentation. Now we hear at Chum Television, big supporters of BNL from day one, even before day one, even before a major label record deal, before a major label record. In fact, Speaker's Corner was a scene over 10 years ago where they first did an impromptu performance. Now, before we return to that very Speaker's Corner, where the band is gathered now live, let's take a look at that historic piece of tape from over 10 years ago. I remember being in a club in Calgary when Female Goono was number one on the CFMY chart. I'm very, very excited about it. It got knocked out by Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I like the name of that song. That's funny. And yeah. then when I finally heard it, I was like, oh, I don't mind. That's, that's fine. It's allowed to knock us out at number one. Like, I realized it was important. It's interesting to hear you say that there was like a level of honesty to it that like to kind of present yourselves as like brooding or edgy wouldn't be true to like your suburban guys. It's a high school band. But that resonated. It really did. Like people right away, I could, we could see it in the audiences, see how they were like, they could see themselves in us. What about that was like, because it was Canadian. There, like, I mean, there was like a trend or I don't know, I'm going to call it a trend, but like you were picking up on things that had like a irony and humor in them. But there is this specific flavor that was like a Canadian thing and even like a suburban Toronto thing. Funny music. Why did that happen here? It wasn't just Bernie Ladies. There were a bunch of bands. We don't have a name for that movement, but it did. It happened. Maybe it's a cross-section. Musically, I think about the stuff that I was being exposed to at the time from elsewhere. You know, even R.E.M. would have goofy B-sides, you know, a sense of humor in how they presented things. But it was, you know, also hidden behind unintelligible lyrics. In England, you had things like the House Martins or, you know, even Billy Bragg, who was serious and humorous. Yeah, very political, though. Absolutely. But all those things. And we felt like politics was part of who we were, too. All those things were part of who we were. And, you know, the band that I went to see when I was a kid that made me want to be in a band was the Violent Femmes. Yeah. That's another one with darkness and humor and tons of energy. You know, for us, it was about the accessibility of being able to just play an acoustic guitar and sing in harmony. But then I guess also there is that thread of like the Canadian comedy influence around the world. You know, the two big influences culturally from kind of white Anglo-Canadian culture Yeah, are musical artists like the band and Neil Young, who kind of play American music through a Canadian lens. And then you have the comedy side, whether it's SCTV or Jim Carrey or Mike Myers or whatever else. I remember watching you on Much Music. You guys were doing a cover of Fight the Power. Got to give us what we need. Our freedom of speech is freedom of death. We got to fight the powers that be. Let me hear you say fight the power. Fight the power. And like the joke is like, this is the least like Chuck D person you could like. Right. That was a joke that a lot of people got. Although, I, you know, I look back at that now and I try and figure out like where the line is on that because we passionately loved Public Enemy and we loved hip hop music. And now you weren't making fun of it. We weren't making, making fun, fun of, of it. Of yourself, but I, I think guess. some people would have taken it that we were making fun of it, especially then. It would be that sense of that kind of, you know, here isn't this funny, these white suburban kids making fun of hip-hop, which was not what we were intending to do at all. So I don't know how palatable it was for outsiders, but for us, the challenge was how do we play a song that's so full of samples and actually, like, replicate it? You know, we did it with Beastie Boys' Shake Your Rump as well, like where we'd go and dissect 
and try and play every single sample that's in that recording yeah. and try and play it as, as real as possible. All right. Well, you bring up the cassettes. You like move like 100,000 cassettes? Yeah, just about. So this is like a DIY up by your bootstraps origin story. And then at some point later, you got like a number one on the Billboard charts, the American charts with one week. And then there's a period in between that where I think it's fair to say that you were darlings of the Canadian music content system. Is that fair to say that like you were kind of like really intertwined with that machinery and there was a period where you were very successful as a Canadian band of the Canadian system? Yes. Basically at the very earliest time and then once we had international success, those are the two times that, that CanCon really helped us. Like Our experience with Canada in general was like we blew up. We got really hugely successful. We, you know, the Gordon tour, we sold out everywhere we went. But Canada is a kind of place where it can only sustain so much. Let's say you go to Calgary and you play the university in the fall for Frosh Week. And then you come back and do a theater in the, in the winter. And then you do the Calgary Stampede. And then you put another album out. Nobody comes back because they've just seen you three times. Yeah. You could kind of achieve within Ontario what you would then have to go through the entire rest of the country to achieve. Well, and there's more now. There are more small, like, interesting performing arts centers and theaters in communities all over Canada. Like, I've done tours just around Vancouver Island or just mm -hmm. around Alberta. Southern Ontario is just filled with these theaters now, which makes it great for being able to play. Although, once you play that theater, you can't come back there for quite some time. So what do you do in that interim? Yeah. That's why we started playing in the United States was – because we could go to Ohio and play Cincinnati, Columbus, Akron, Cleveland, Toledo, and not get the same audience. But the CanCon thing really helped us both with CFMY and with CBC specifically, and much music. Those are the, the things that really got us going in the early times. We felt, though, by the time our second album was winding down, everybody was, like, we'd saturated, everybody was sick of us, and it was kind of considered like we were done. You know, we had a hit with the old apartment in mm -hmm. Canada, but at the same time, we're trying to tour and canceling some shows because they weren't selling well enough. Huh. That was the necessity that drove us to play in the U.S. And fast forward three years, and one week goes to number one on the Billboard chart. It's been one week since you looked at me. Cut your head to the side and said I'm angry. Five days since you laughed at me. Saying get back together, come back and see me. But meanwhile, we've been doing all that stuff, like I was saying, in Ohio and... Michigan and wherever else, just playing constantly and building up this audience. Do you think one week was like the accumulation of a slow burn in the States? Or was it just like you could have debuted a week earlier and that song would have done as well? It was absolutely the accumulation of all the momentum that we'd built. Because it's and, a catchy as hell song. Like it, right. could, it could have just happened on its own. Well, but to have the access to radio, like we hadn't had any MTV play. VH1 a bit before that, but no MTV which really helped one week. But the radio thing was what blew it up. Yeah. And that was because we built up these relationships with radio in all these markets. Do you think that to listeners, it was like, oh yeah, Bare Naked Ladies, here's our new song, or were you like a new band? I think for Top 40 listeners, we were basically a new band. We yeah. had Old Apartment was a hit where it like went to number 40, but it was one of these ones that it was a hit for about a year and a half. So it would be a hit in one yeah, yeah, market yeah. and then a hit somewhere else. Like you Not can't... the song you hear at the mall every time you go to the mall. Right. Yeah. And you can't have hits like that anymore where they're regional. Back then, in the mid-90s, it was before – this is one of the weirdest things for us because it was the consolidation of radio and the deregulation of radio in the United States helped us in a way. Like, we got helped by that and the bubble in the the CD market. You know, two things that seem weird and kind of 
counter to the way we want to see the world. But it really did help us because we had built all these relationships with radio stations, parts of smaller chains or independently owned stations all across the country. And then everything got deregulated. Clear Channel particularly bought up tons of these stations. And then the station managers and program directors and so on would go, hey, we've got this band who are huge in our area. They all ended up saying, we've got this band, Bare Naked Ladies. So then when One Week came out, it was perfect timing. It's interesting. And like, you know, that whole like success in show business about showing up, it seems like for Bare Naked Ladies that you hung on mm -hmm. and were around to have that success after you'd been written off and that in getting you through that period, the Canadian system helped. But I just want to know what you think about that Canadian system. I think the regulations are necessary. I don't know how valuable they are now, but I think they are. I mean, for us, I can only speak to my own experience. They were hugely helpful. You know, I remember the backlash used to always be that, and Brian Adams famously said that CanCon breeds mediocrity. And, you know, I took that personally. I thought, like, do you mean me? Because it's helping me? He probably did, but <laughs> no, I don't know. It didn't help Brian Adams? No. Well, that's, his feeling was that it didn't, that he had to go elsewhere to make it. But uh -huh. I think going elsewhere to make it is how you become an international star, if you make it internationally. But the fact that you can sustain even a small amount of a star system in Canada with music that is specifically Canadian, I mean, you have a lot of stuff, especially in the 80s, where labels were signing the Canadian version of Band X. But by my era, I mean, you had artists like, whether it's the Tragically Hip, who didn't have that international success, but were able to sustain a career and a familiarity and a connection across the country. That's largely due to CanCon. What we found later in our career was, although it was helpful to us, as you have a deeper or older catalog, you have these stations who are like, oh, we need Canadian gold, like we call it, you know, heritage stuff. And you realize it's the same stuff over and over again. It's the same Alanis songs and Bernicke There's like a hundred songs that you'll right. still hear on repeat. Yeah. Some and, of them like 30 years old. Well, and let's say the percentage shifts depending on time of day and what format your station is and so on of CanCon that you have to play. But let's say it's 50%. There isn't a single broadcaster in Canada who's going to play 51%. Yeah. They will absolutely not, no matter how big it is. Not one song more than they have to. Right. The more Canadian superstars you have on the international stage, so whether that goes to older acts like Nickelback or Shania Twain or Bare Naked Ladies, or whether it's The Weeknd or Drake or Shawn Mendes, that narrows the availability of space for up-and-coming or distinctly, specifically Canadian. You'll hit your quota with the same five acts. That's right. And then there's It didn't like, used to be like that. Yeah. You know, there were far fewer CanCon qualified acts who were on the same playlists in the U.S. Or, or in Europe. You must have known everybody doing the circuit, doing the stations, doing the shows, and the other acts that would come up and the hosts. Like, you must have known everybody. Yeah, it was it was a small circuit too. You didn't necessarily know all the other bands, and some are a little younger than you, and some are a little old. I can I can remember, like often you'd meet up with somebody at a festival in Europe, and it's like, oh, there I can talk to Alanis now because we're playing on the same festival in England in '96 or whatever. But I remember doing a radio show in the U.S. with Nelly Furtado when she was at the height of her fame, and she said. Uh, Oh, I love you guys. I remember when uh, when I went on my band trip to Salmon Arm in grade eight, and we listened to your tape all the time. And it was the first time I actually felt old. Yeah. Like, you know, we spent most of our career thinking we were the kids. And all of a sudden, you have these other generations who see you as Lauren Green. And that's a weird thing. <laughs> a reference the kids won't. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got Google and Wikipedia. Yeah.
but yeah, back then, like again, much music was such a force. You know, I have this group where it's myself and Craig Northey from The Odds, Chris Murphy from Sloan, and Mo Berg from Pursuit of Happiness. Mm-hmm. It's called the Trans Canada Highwaymen. And uh, my joke was that, you know, we had some video projection. I said, we all have to get pictures of ourselves with Master T and put them up on the screens. And Chris Murphy, like, texts us a picture of him with Master T within 30 seconds. Yeah. But the thing is, we all have those same experiences from my generation, the same experiences of talking to the same hosts, you know, the same radio stations, the same record company pluggers. That was fun being part of that community. I'm not sure if it exists anymore. I feel like maybe things have just dispersed. Much music isn't a force. Right. Everything has just gotten with the internet so niche and, and narrow. Right. I don't know how much of the, you know, the scene it really is because it becomes, it's maybe about where your town is. Yeah. And I think we were so set on not being just a Toronto band. Like we knew, even when we were young, we had this understanding that the rest of the country saw Toronto as having this unfair advantage across Canada. And that Toronto didn't care about the rest of the country, didn't connect with it. We felt like we did connect with it. But some of the, you know, those national broadcasters made us feel connected to Vancouver Island or Newfoundland or the North or whatever else. So we wanted to get out there as soon as we could and as often as we could. I mean, it didn't stop us from identifying ourselves as with where we were from, but we always felt like we wanted to be accessible. Yeah, I think there was no like Toronto snobbery sense to it or anything like I think you were re- you were repping Scarborough more than Toronto. That's right. And every, that was everybody, a, that was everybody's got their Scarborough, right? Everybody's, That's right. I don't know. It's interesting. Like I look back on all those bands and like I don't remember the songs of those bands. Like I could sing and I won't probably like 10 different Bare Naked Ladies songs, which like you can't help but know these songs so well. And there's a there's a something about that that gets I think underappreciated. You don't need to hear this, but it was it was not novelty music. There was a desire to do real songwriting and to express like a real range of emotion. And I think you could have just as easily presented yourself as songwriters of a different vein. But it was really effective to present yourselves in the way that you did in, a, in, a, in a, like a really benign and fun and accessible way. And that was a hard thing to deal with later because we felt like we knew we dug our own grave in a way, but we also knew that that was what helped make us successful. The way we presented ourselves, we were so uncomfortable presenting ourselves in a way that could be seen as pretentious. I think we just didn't believe it in ourselves. But then what it meant was you could fill an album with songs that were not necessarily novelty songs. And critics, writers wouldn't see that or wouldn't be able to see past the image and the goofy songs. And we always felt like, well, the Beatles could put Octopus's Garden on the same record as I Want You. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, as if we were the Beatles. But... It took us a long time, took me a long time to get my head around the fact that it's okay for people to like the music however they want to like it. You know, I struggled with, as we got more successful, I remember on the stunt tour, so that was our our big breakthrough album in the U.S., doing a show in St. Louis, I think it was the first night of the tour, and we had invited Rufus Wainwright to come out as our opening act. His first album was out. We loved it. And it was his first tour, and he came out and he got heckled by the audience, you know, people yelling homophobic epithets at him and so on. And I realized, like, I looked in the audience and it's backward baseball hats and it's guys who don't look like me. Or yeah. like they, I didn't see myself reflected in the audience and that was upsetting. We fixed that. You know, Ed and I would go on stage every night and introduce Rufus to let the audience know that it wasn't some record company foisting him on the bill or promoter. It was because we wanted him there. And it was a really tough thing to to figure out. Does it matter if they look like you or act like you? Well, when it becomes... Hateful things like that, yeah, it does matter. 
That's not the first Rufus Wainwright being heckled story. You, you know, you know, the first one I heard mm. was fucking Gavin McInnes of Vice when Rufus was playing in Montreal. People were like clapping for Rufus. He's like, come on, this is bullshit. And was, I guess, perceived sentimentality. But just the fact that Rufus Wainwright is just unapologetically like kind of showing his heart. Right. Was, was uh, embarrassing. Was embarrassing to Gavin. And he was like demanding that the audience must be lying in their appreciation or, <sighs> you know. You know what we're talking about? It's punk rock is for Rufus Wainwright to get in front of audiences like that and yeah. be a Rufus Wainwright. That is- That's totally punk. Well, I don't think Rufus can be anybody but himself. Yeah. I always admire that. You know, like I'm thinking about going to see the Beastie Boys live. And, you know, back in the 90s, you would see people be crowd surfing all the time. And of course, then what you would see is guys trying to grope young women who were on top of the crowd and the Beastie Boys stopping the show yeah. to yell at the guys- you know, there are a lot of bands who wouldn't do that. They would just let it go because they're doing their show and these guys are doing their thing and that's it. Similar thing for the Beasties to kind of reckon with the frat boy contingent and that's the right. fight for your right to party audience and that they want to grow. But like, you know, and like people who weren't necessarily in on the joke, because I think that early Beasties was a joke. That's right. You know, you could have started like Rufus, like, here's my heart. Right. Here's my soul. It was also part of who you were to be funny and to, you know, it's not like you were like betraying anything. Exactly. All that was honest. But it made it difficult. It's difficult to age. It's difficult to right. like not be a kid from Scarborough when you have a million dollars and when you are trying to write different kinds of songs. It seems like that's your struggle. As such a music fan growing up, I was very aware of my heroes' own journeys and their their kind of trajectory as far as how they changed as artists as they got older. There is a sense I find in Canada, too, this kind of don't change yeah. thing. The, the thing people used to always yell at us, we used to joke about it all the time, was stay Canadian. Like that was like somehow an indicator of why they liked us. What did that mean to you? What do you think they meant? Part of them, I think, meant, and this is where it goes back to, I mean, the, the archetype is the hip, is stay our secret. Canadians really like to be able to see themselves reflected in a positive way. You know, like I think that was the excitement about the election of Justin Trudeau was people went, oh, that's how I see myself as a Canadian, mm -hmm. you know, and then when you betray that, then what do you have left? But I think there is this fear in Canadians that we're going to betray them somehow. Like you're going to get too big for your britches or something or, or for you to be like a heartfelt songwriter or would be un-Canadian or what? Or... You're gonna get arrested and and change. You know, like you know what I mean. Like, it's, it, oh, now that's that's not the oh. You like it's as if like yeah. your kid did something to embarrass you, or your your dad did something to embarrass you. It's like there's a sense of that. Like I think about the summer of 1988 when when Gretzky got traded to yeah. Los Angeles and Ben Johnson won the gold medal, lost the gold medal. Yeah, those are heavy things for Canadian people. I mean, they're sports things. I don't know much about sports, but I was alive. I was aware, but. I think that the Ben Johnson thing is specifically shook Canadian identity to its core. Its sense of like he embarrassed us on the world stage. That still bothers me and like grow the fuck up. Oh, absolutely. Grow the fuck up on both. Like, yeah, Gretzky's taking that deal. And B, like, is your capacity to like a black guy so limited? You know what I mean? Like he yeah. got railroaded so badly. Terrible. And the way that the whiplash with which it went from celebrating him to just vilifying him. Yeah. And then we find out later, like there's, there's stuff that's still coming out about that, about how hard done he was. And Yeah. It's amazing the scandal behind that. Yeah. Okay. So you brought it up. Can I say something in your defense? Sure. With regards to your arrest and drug scandal? It wasn't that much cocaine. <laughs> 
the fuck do people think musicians are doing? Did you feel this way? Like, I felt like there was something about the extremity of like, what? Well, I was certainly surprised by the response. Yeah. Honestly, I think part of me that's the, that's the, just what keeps me afloat is thinking, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. And then there was a moment where I thought, maybe I'm not going to get through this because it was such a big deal. I didn't expect my first time on the cover of the National Post to be my mugshot. Yeah. But, you know, that's the way it happens sometimes, I guess. You, what was, what was your, you, you, you had accomplished a lot by that point. Were you really hoping for your first National Post cover? Here's Canada's hero. Yeah. And my other advice is um, always shave if you because you never know. Yeah. M- maybe that helps in the long run. You're trying to reform an image or, or kind of evolve. Uh, it wasn't what I – it wasn't on, on purpose. I, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't trying to change my image, although I'm sure there are people who have accused me of that. I think that there is something, though, there to the whole double edge of the Canadian thing of like, we loved you one way and you have betrayed us and you fucked it up by being this other way. Right. But then also the way that we loved you embarrasses us, too. There's also that. Like, oh, that's know, interesting. Think about, think about how you felt about us in grade 10. It's kind of a smaller version of how a lot of Canada yeah. felt about us or a, lo- a lot of Canadian media. We, even, even radio and record companies and so on, there was a point where they were kind of like, yeah, I know it's popular, but it's not really cool. And like, we're kind of like, yeah, we know it's not cool, but it's fun. And that was it. Like, you can't plead with people to like you. Uh, it doesn't work like that in music. People will connect with you or they won't. I mean, you're putting things out in the world, and, and if people connect with it on whatever basis, you, you kind of have to honor that. Right. But I feel like we touched on something really interesting, like this idea that people see themselves, and Canadians really want to see themselves mirrored and represented, but then they hate what they see. Now, do they hate it because you've betrayed what it is, because you, in, in, be it in maturing or getting arrested or Ben Johnson getting caught or Wayne Gretzky taking the money, you're now, okay, you've sold out. Or was there a lie in that image in the first place? And you bring up Justin Trudeau and like, okay, that's how we want to be seen. But when you find out that like, well, maybe that's not true about us. I don't know. Like, like the image that Canadians consumed and purchased that you and the other band sold to them, I think said something about who we think we are. And it was maybe never true. And we'll never forgive anybody who punctures that. Yes, I think that last part is probably the most important. It's not so much that the lie is in us as Canadians, but purely the fact that it's it's an uncomplicated idea of looking at somebody else as our reflection, as our national identity. First of all, our national identity is so broad and so scattered. It isn't something individual. And finally, I think this country is coming to understand that. It's different now, isn't it? The struggle of trying to grow out of this, you know, basically as a teenager, you put an image forward and now it's like, okay, that got me in the door, but how do I evolve? It's like, do you have to grow up or does Canada have to grow up to understand that a person is not the songs they wrote when they were 18? Right. And we're not necessarily just this like kind of joke of a people, you know? That's right. Like, okay, you can bring, you know, your Kurt Cobain, we'll bring... If I had a million dollars. That's right. That's so so I've we're, got Kraft Dinner. Yeah. You know, and that. We're just this harmless people. You know, that was, that's 30 years ago when we wrote that song. I felt like we as Canadians had less desire to talk about ourselves in case somebody outside of Canada didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. I remember having to fret over, well, they don't have K cars in the UK. What do we say in this line about the K cars? Because they won't understand it. You know, and meanwhile, I'm learning about being on the dole. And a miners' strike and whatever else from all the bands that I like in the UK. And I didn't think, well, I can't like that because I don't understand the politics. I 
I learned about it. Yeah. That's how I learned about things. Well, what's music for? Right. I mean, the evolution of all these things. It's interesting that Gord Downey's kind of last act of his life was to shine a light on the fact that we're not who we think we are. Right. And that we, we have non-benign problems in this country and, and things that we have to take responsibility for. Exactly. I don't have any regrets about the stuff that we joked about or talked about or how we presented ourselves. I think it was fun and it was useful for people. And it's the soundtrack to so many people's parts of their lives that I had nothing to do with. Like, that's awesome. And I love that. Also, the way pop culture internationally has changed, meme culture, things move so much faster and people joke about things both benign and non-benign in a much more inside way now that wouldn't work. You know, what we did was so kind of innocent. I think it was an innocent time for those things. And now, as an artist, you want to be able to figure out where you fit in that world. Yeah. But you are also an artist. Artists need to eat and artists need audiences. And you left a massively successful commercial enterprise to break off solo. Here's some approval you didn't solicit or require. I think you had to do it. I think it's like you kind of have these two arguments. Like On the one hand, like, look, you're incredibly fortunate to be a part of this thing that people love so much. Like there's there's far worse things than than putting your creative energies within that packaging and living out your years as a creator under that. I think that's fine, but I don't think it's possible to be a, a bare naked lady and be like 70 years old and, and writing songs. Like, I don't think it would work. I don't know. Y- you couldn't. We would say that 20 years, 30 years ago about the Rolling Stones even, and they were like actually cool. Imagine the struggle of keeping that up, never mind keeping up kind of the youthful bounciness of BNL. You know, we changed and we grew as a band over over the time that I was in it. Like, I'm proud of stuff all the way through that catalog, but... If I'd stayed in the group, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do the million things that I have been doing since then. But to have that kind of like second or maybe it's a third or a fourth act, I guess that's the question. Are there second acts in Canadian public life? I don't know. I mean, like I'm trying to think of good examples of a second act. I'm trying to think even in in other media, are there comebacks, second acts? It's something that despite that famous quote, it happens in, the, in America quite a lot. They say Americans love the second act, despite what Fitzgerald said. All right. Well, you got your work cut out for you then. I know. So (laughs) I've just started in the last couple of years, finally started going back to places like the UK and the US and touring my ass off in these places just to kind of reacquaint myself. And it's been relatively small scale, but really moving. And that's where also I'm not as conflicted about the old material. I mean, I can pick and choose whatever the hell I want to Mm -hmm. play. I don't play million dollars because... I don't really want to. And, you know, my excuse is, well, that's a duet with Ed Robertson. We feel weird to do it with somebody else or do it on my own or whatever. But it's also the freedom I have to not play it and still be able to play Brian Wilson or Old Apartment or whatever else and play new stuff and have audience come and be invested. And it's a pretty great feeling. I think that maybe like the example of One Week is proof. Like you're a, you're a real songwriter. Another thing you don't need to hear from me, but like. You're always just one song away, right? <laughs> now, I don't know if the world has to be ready. All these things have the stars have to align. But it's always just like to see you in a different light or for something else to happen. It's just always kind of one one song away. Well, and I feel like I kind of tried that. I probably tried it a little bit too hard. Page One, which was my first kind of real solo record out after I left BNL. A lot of it was like, see, I'm different from BNL. But then also part of it is me saying, see, I'm the same. I'm that guy who does that thing that you already know from BNL. It was conflicted that way. I've stopped thinking about it and just made music, which is, I think I make better stuff because I'm not thinking about it. 
you know, you talked about Brian Wilson, which I wrote when I was 19. Even then I was thinking about like, where do I fit? Yeah. Who's going to like this? I remember making Gordon and thinking like, this is going to be like a mix of Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Welcome to the Pleasure Dome and Sgt. Pepper's. It's going to be like, <laughs> Welcome to the Pleasure Dome for the indie kids. Like I'm trying to market this in my yeah. head, which is, uh, they're ridiculous references, but they're awesome references. Yeah. But it's like, why even think about it now? When I know there's almost no chance, like who, oh, I got to go see that 49-year-old guy from a band I liked when I was 10. And you're imagining that it's that same listener who you have to like, what's he got now? Is it the same or is it different? Whereas, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying. Just do what you're doing and don't think about it. But if it does happen, it, it would probably be somebody who like, they probably have heard your music in the past, but it wouldn't matter. That's what I'm waiting for. So it's a, so the baggage is gone for, for people, I think. Yeah. I think there is a lot of baggage. And that's unfortunate because- God, we did some good stuff. I don't look back and go, God, I, well, there's a couple things where I think, God, I wish we didn't do that, but not that many. I know. I have to ask. What are they? We probably shouldn't have released another postcard with chimpanzees as a single, but we knew that then at the time, too. It's still fun to listen to. Hold on. I think I got it right here. So this is, uh, I believe, from the Bare Naked Ladies' first appearance on American television, 1992, public service announcement on Fox Kids. Oh, this one, yeah. Ballad of Gordon. There was darkness, there was light, there was day and there was night, there was wrong and there was right. And then there was me, you didn't even know me, but you treated me like dirt. And then there was me, you didn't even know me, but you called me a jerk. And then there was me. But to describe this for our listeners, the video tells the story of a misunderstood alien and ends with the words, what's it say there, Stephen? Racial harmony. In case you missed it, it's actually about racial harmony. Yeah, that was actually like it was for Fox Kids, like their uh, Saturday morning cartoons. And I think they had a deal with Sire Records that we were on and like wanted people to have different message songs. So we wrote this song and then they made this video and put racial harmony at the end, just in case you didn't know. It doesn't sound that dissimilar from the Big Bang Theory thing. I know. I'm looking at it and thinking about it. That, yeah, it's the same band. Stephen, thank you. Thank you. That is your Canada Land episode. It's also everybody else's Canada Land episode, but they might not know that it exists. Tell them that it exists. It's free. They can listen to it. You can also give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That sort of thing actually helps. Or you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Uh, there's a news story that we're planning that may or may not be out by the time you're listening to this. Go go to the website and just have a look just in case because it's a really good news story. There's also a new episode of Commons this week. The season, of course, is looking at crude, the huge impacts of the energy industry on life in Canada. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish and Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. We are a listener-supported enterprise. Uh, we need your support, and you can give it to us at patreon.com slash canadaland. We've got a bunch of stuff we'd like to send you if you do decide to help us out. Chickity China, the Chinese chicken. You have a drumstick, and your brain stops ticking. Watching X-Files with no lights on. We're dans la maison. I hope the smoking man's in this one. Like Harrison Ford, I'm getting frantic. Like Sting, I'm tantric. Like Snickers, guaranteed to satisfy. Like Kurosawa, I make mad films. Okay, 
I don't make films. But if I did, they'd have a samurai. Gonna get a set of better clubs. Gonna find the kind with tiny nubs. Just so my irons aren't always flying off the back swing. Gonna get in tune with Sailor Moon. Cause that cartoon has got the boom. Anime babes that make me think the wrong thing. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.